0: Good morning. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm not Charlie Sykes. I'm Bill Crystal, pinch hitting for him here on July sixth, right after the long July 4th weekend. I think Charlie will be back tomorrow, but I'm very pleased to be joined today by Mona Charon, who obviously is a experienced podcaster on her own. So we'll we'll do our best to make up for the absence of Charlie, right, Mona?
1: We can't possibly really substitute for Charlie. We can only do our best. Um, you know, I feel like a pirate. You know, we've hijacked the uh, Bulwark podcast, but uh, but no, we'll 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 do our best, Bill, our humble best to. Uh, that was right. Yeah, that's very polite. This is
0: Mona, so much more polite than I am, of course. <laughs> you know, has to pretend that kind of deference, and uh, but nonetheless, um, and of course, you yourself, such a, an important podcast host. So we're it's, it'll be a, Anyway, I think we'll have a good discussion why don't you have a nice July 4th
1: yes um, very nice July 4th um, it uh, it doesn't quite these days um, have the feeling that it had when uh, in past years where it was very apolitical um, I, I we live in Northern Virginia and I always enjoyed the fact that when you went out to this to the local fireworks we didn't go into the city because we didn't want to deal with the crowds on the mall. But we go to our local July Fourth, and it was so great because people of all types and all, obviously, all political persuasions, you know, were, were joined in this in this ritual, in this civic ritual, and um, and it was a, a very uniting feeling. And um, and now, unfortunately, everything has been so poisoned by partisanship that. Um, you know the very act of displaying the flag or not displaying the flag, and uh, and and how you celebrate the holiday. I do remember with amusement that that Trump, you know, wanted military parades and and all of this. You know, it it has it has infected it to some degree. It has spoiled it to some degree. But but I I try to you know be positive and think. You know, that, that most people, I I suspect, still want it to be a kind of civic religion that we celebrate and, and we unite on that day, I hope.
0: Yeah, I was struck. I can't tell sort of how much of the, the crazed partisanship and picking at every aspect of it and making the flag a, a, a partisan matter and then the size of the flag you display and then, of course, everything else that goes with it, the history. How much of that is sort of a Twitter phenomenon or at least a... Uh, an online phenomenon, or a, you know, Trump, an anti-Trump partisan phenomenon, and ninety percent of America is going, you know, enjoying local fireworks the way they did for the last thirty years, and 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 having picnics with family and barbecues and so forth. Or, but I don't know. Maybe it's, I think it's unfortunately, I wish I could say with confidence that this is just a tiny sliver and the rest of America's ignoring that. But it doesn't quite feel that way, does it?
1: No. And I, here's what I would say I would say both things are probably true. Um, there are still probably broad swaths of the country that do still want to celebrate and do celebrate the holiday in the traditional way and with the traditional sensibility. But there is definitely a larger and larger slice of the country uh, that is getting meaner and nastier and more hateful. And you see it all the time. I see it in my local listserv, you know, that for the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is normally, you know, like maybe we can have trash day moved one day for, you know, the holiday or, you know, please pick up your dog poop or whatever. But but lately, I mean, just and I've noticed a real change over the last few years the uh po- politics is 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 intruding uh people are being rude to one another um it's it's infiltrating really everywhere and um, and not all the time mind you and uh but but it's there and uh, it's noticeable
0: yeah I was very struck that uh, along those lines too so it's not I mean of course there've always been people on the quite far left, who didn't like, you know, what July 4th was celebrating, didn't like American sense, or at least wanted to debunk aspects of it, which is mm-hmm, natural to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some degree. And then, of course, I suppose the same on the far right, way back when, though not much in our lifetime, I would say on the right, since the right was pretty, you know, from Reagan on, pretty pro-American, but uh, mm-hmm. until recently. Uh but you know, you, it, it isn't just a few academics and so forth on and troublemakers on, on Twitter. I mean, the governor of a state, Kristi Noem, the governor of, of uh, South Dakota, but a, certainly a likely presidential candidate in 2024, couldn't resist on July 4th tweeting out photos of, you know, July 4th under Trump, great big fireworks over Mount Rushmore. And then July 4th, on, as you put it, I think it was, you know, in the, under Biden, you know, that her family somehow with one sparkler. And that just shows how much <laughs> things have gone downhill. Now, it turns <laughs> out, I, I believe, that the photo she tweeted out was not from the Trump. It's it's a composite photo a photographer did. He explains it on his own blog. He's not deceiving anyone of what of sort of putting fireworks over Mount Rushmore, what it would look like if you did that. And he did it, I think, five years ago or something, or maybe more. Uh, when President Obama was president. So the whole thing is a kind of comedy of errors and mis- misinformation. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that if you're running for the Republican nomination for 2024, um, you, you want to make your political points on July 4th. You don't want to give voters the sense that, you know what, you're the kind of person who puts politics aside on July 4th.
1: Yeah. You know, um, there's a good piece in the bulwark today, actually, called The Paradox of Trumpist Patriotism by Joshua Tate, Um, in which he sort of uh, examines the views of some of the Trumpist intellectuals, if you can call them that, but who he says, look, they, these people do not like half of America. They claim to be, you know, flag waving patriots, but they hate, um, most, most America or, or a majority of, of Americans who voted for Biden. That's how they define it. And, uh, that's a, that's a very new thing on the right, but, um, uh, but it is, a, a, I recommend the piece, Paradox yeah, of Trumpist a, Patriotism.
0: No, it's a good piece. Again, look, conservatism, like all points of view, has always had. Uh, but critical of aspects of whatever country it's it's located in, and uh, conservatives certainly were critical of a lot of recent developments, and by recent, I mean decades ago in American history, and sometimes going back even further, and that's all fine. But you're right, the kind of, it's one thing to say, you know, I think progressivism is problematic, or mm-hmm. FDR did some things in the New Deal he shouldn't have done, or, right. uh, you know, I don't like the Great <laughs> Society. I mean, that's more the normal political uh, or certain cultural and, like, and educational changes or maybe for the worse. But yes, the thoroughgoing, uh, hatred, resentment, bitterness at the country they're living in. Now, look, people are entitled to dislike the country they're living in. They're entitled to emigrate for that matter. They're entitled to, to say it should be fundamentally changed. And in some countries, if we found ourselves in them, we would want to fundamentally change the way they're governed. But, uh, it's a little hard then to say, but I love this country right now. I mean, you can't, how do well, you love the country really- if you don't love, if you don't love its the it the real existing country to use a cold war phrase and also if you don't love the principles on which it's based so you're debunking liberal liberal in the classic liberal sense <laughs> principles and you're 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 you, you kind of loathe the country that's been built on those principles but then you're the real patriot i think that's the
1: Right, right. No, no, yeah, you, you've put your finger on it. That's the thing. It's that it's that some of these um, Trumpist intellectuals are rejecting the Enlightenment principles upon which the country was was founded. And people like Adrian Vermeule, uh, Patrick Denine, they are they are not just saying, "Look, we object to the excesses of the progressives and the woke you know sensibility." They're saying the whole experiment with small L liberalism has been a failure. And they want something I mean what what their alternative is they're not really all that specific about, but you know, there really aren't too many other options that preserve freedom, right I mean you, you, know, you right. can have an authoritarian regime, but what do you want? You want a monarchy uh, you know but uh, but they are saying that they have really uh, decided that liberalism itself is a failed experiment, so that's that's a profoundly radical. Uh, critique, I would
0: say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's been a Marxist critique for a long time, but yeah. and that's fine. But but then the Marxists, usually, they do occasionally, they did occasionally for polemical reasons, but don't then claim to be the most patriotic Americans. They also go around debunking the kind of traditional patriotism. What's most striking about the Trumpist effort is the, uh, on the political side, at least, is the kind of um, hatred of the country in some respects, and and and, and disdain for it, combined with, not just patriotism but hyper nationalism that's the other thing the kind of uh, reification if that's the right word of the flag and of the oath and i mean these are all things i like and have never you know i've always stood for the like, obviously
1: mm-hmm. not obviously
0: for the flag and for the oath and even you know the star spangled i mean i really do like the star spangled banner even studied a little bit the history of those things because i think they're kind of interesting mm-hmm. the way american patriotism is different from a lot of uh, uh, old world patriotism and so forth but they are the, the degree now of kind of I don't even know what to call it uh, sort of uh, piety is even too weak. You know what I mean? It's worship yeah, of the, of these seculars, what ultimately are obviously symbols of a nation, and people are entitled to uh, point out their history and and, and criticize yeah. them if they wish. But but you can't say a word right i mean it's
1: uh, they 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 bring a certain truculence to it which i find incredibly off putting you know this this sort of chest thumping and and any criticism of the country is regarded as treason Um, and, uh, and, and it's stupid. I I just, I I recoil from that kind of thing though. I, you know, I've always considered myself to be a patriot, but the, the nationalism is, uh, with its hostility to others and its eagerness to blame immigrants and, you know, uh, minorities and people from, you know, what countries, you know, for our problems, that's just, that's just ignorant and demagogic and ugly.
0: And the anti-intellectualism, I mean, it's the Pledge of Allegiance. It's kind of interesting, actually. It was invented by a sort of Christian socialist type in the late 19th century. Is it's that been, right? Yeah. yeah Francis that. Bellamy, uh, uh. Uh, post-Civil War, obviously, and always with an edge towards a kind of, you know, we're one nation. So uh, a kind of, uh, you know, anti-Confederate side to it, although after mm-hmm. the fact, mm-hmm. but also a kind of communitarianism you might say ahead of time you know <laughs> you yeah. know liberty and justice for all but kind of a, a critique of the current order that was what how she understood it i believe and then um it was changed over the years eisenhower added under god or congress mm-hmm. did on, at his urging in 1954 at the height of the cold war and we were uh, yeah. and so these are kind of interesting historical uh little studies one can make about american uh political culture, civic culture. But again, this, the, the anti-intellectualism of the rights, if you say something like that, it's kind of ironic that you're making the pledge such a big, big deal. Maybe, you know, they once, we didn't have the pledge for all of American history. Um, But no, you can't even, uh, you know, it's sort of, there's such a discouraging, discouragement, if that's a word, of of uh, so sort of intellectual inquiry into our own country's history and origins an inquiry that ultimately i think would make people more attached not less attached to America but that that they are not very interested in that kind of inquiry i think
1: well my feeling is um that you should always tell the truth <laughs> yeah. and uh, about your country and most countries don't by the way most countries sort of instill some myths um to their to their young and that's, I guess, normal to, to a degree. But look, uh, I, I think we, we have a duty um, to tell the truth about our, our country so that you don't wind up With young people sort of being disillusioned when they find out the truth, right? I mean, it's it's better to give the whole story and say, "Look, you know, we have our flaws and we've we've committed crimes in our history, and you know what we did with you know stealing the land of Native Americans and breaking our promises to them, and how badly we treated African Americans." I mean, you know, all those things have to be part of the part of the story, but they're not the whole story, and that's that's where we come into conflict with. like the 1619 project that tends to want to make that the center of the story. Whereas I think it's like, you know, maybe 45% of the story, but not the, not the whole thing. Right. Right. Um, And, um, and so, you know, if, if you, if you have a, if you have a a policy of, of grappling with your history, it shows your bona fides, right. That you're trying to live up to the, the ideals of the founders that you're trying to make, Make it uh, a more perfect union, and uh, and that's the best that any humans can do. But but lying is never, or whitewashing is 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 not the way to get there.
0: Yes, and just in the context of, of not lying, I, I miss I, I, said, I said Francis Bellamy, and somehow my mind flashed to the fact that Francis is these days normally a. A, a female name. And so I, I said she, I think, a few minutes ago. And, and, and uh, Francis Bellamy was a he. He was a, ah, Christian, okay. a male Christian minister. I'm not sure how many female ones there were at the right. time. But in any case, but that, yes, he did. He was a Christian socialist type who wrote the pledge in, I think, 1892 or something like that. Mm. Um, but so your man, J.D. JD Vance, I believe you wrote <laughs> an excellent piece about him about uh, two, three months ago, has announced his Ohio Senate candidacy and, and trying to be Trumpier than the other crazed Trumpy Ohio Republican Senate candidates. I mean, I thought Josh Mandel had sort of secured the niche there, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but maybe he has, maybe JD is just going to be one step over, but say a word about him, his intellectual development over the last uh, political development over the last five, six, seven years.
1: Yeah. So there, you know, there have been so many uh, people over the last five years who have, um, been disappointing, um, deeply disappointing, and um, unfortunately, he's one of them. I was somebody who found his book, uh, "Hillbilly Elegy," quite impressive. I interviewed him on my uh, last podcast that I used to do with Jay Nordlinger, um, and uh, was a, a really good discussion. I, I I reviewed and praised the book in National Review. Um, he um, he brought you know his own experience i'd say uh growing up in a kind of dysfunctional uh rural ish uh white family um uh, he, he brought that perspective and 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 talked about the the what what i saw is you know and an some necessary truth telling you know that that there's a real problem with drug abuse there's a real problem with family uh, breakdown. Um, his mother had, I think he said something like 14 husbands and boyfriends you know during his growing up years. that's that was really uh, a terrible thing. And um, she was also a, an addict. Anyway, um, he so he he bursts on the scene a lot of people and, and, and I plead guilty, to, I did too. We praised his book. By the way, when he first debuted, he was very clear that he found Trump to be a, a very destructive force on people like his family that he that you know were supporting him, and he he thought that uh, Trump was very bad for America, and he said that explicitly. Um, but of course, after a while, I I don't know exactly how it all happened, but I suspect that it was because he kept being invited on shows to talk about what the Trump people were thinking, because he was supposedly this spokesperson for the white working class, you know, and, and I guess it was, it just, he sort of slipped into becoming an, ex, an explainer for why people like Trump to being a defender of the whole thing. And now he has gone all the way. I mean, his, his Twitter feed, I don't know if you, I mean, he, he recently decided to, to delete the tweets where he had said he voted for Evan McMullen in 2016. He has, he has issued abject apologies about his anti-Trump comments from 2016. Um, And, uh, and he's even, uh, and I commented on this on Twitter at the time, you know, he's even gone to the point of lending credence to QAnon types, uh, in an effort to, um, to ingratiate himself with, uh, with the Trump right. And, um, it's just, he's a really smart guy. Uh, he certainly knows better, but he has... Decided that this is this is the road to success in today's Republican Party in today's conservative world, and it's really sad. Um, and uh, you know he's going to join. You said it's Seth Mandel, right? No, Josh it. Mandel. Josh, sorry, Josh Mandel in 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 Ohio, who also you know he was somebody. He was a normal sort of right of center Republican. I remember meeting him many years ago. Totally normal guy. Now he's burning. Uh, masks on Twitter um, to uh, to signal, you know, these stupid gestures, you know, to show that uh, that he's in, he's down with the culture war, you know, and uh, that's where we are.
0: No, it's it's depressing. I mean, JD I knew really well, but some we had dinner and stuff in in 2016 he was in Washington a fair amount at that point, point. Um, uh, and then he moved out to OPEC ohio uh, where part of where he'd grown up at least partly and uh obviously began to look at the political future which is fine but yeah but he found it was unsustainable to be anti-trump obviously and and i do think this is a kind of phenomenon that happens that someone like jd vance who's an intelligent guy it's hard to just tell yourself look i have to make some accommodations but i'm not going to go all the way i'm not going to really because it's it's an awkward position to be in. You can be in it for weeks or months. You can be in it if you're a business person and you're just saying, you know what, I, I just want to get along with Trump. He'll be good for me for four years. I hope I'm not going to stick my head up one way or the other. But if you're going to run for office, you kind of have to take a position. And plus, if you're smart and intellectual, you sort of want to rationalize what you're doing. And I do think some of the more intellectual types have therefore become the most uh, committed to kind of Trumpism. They're not just sort of putting up with Trump for the time being. You know, Mitch McConnell doesn't care and he's, right. and I, don't, I don't approve of what he's done, but I mean, he's in a way hasn't gone as far and J.D. Vance is a lot more interested in sort of, I would say, the, the sort of some deeper questions about America and, 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 and uh, you know, capitalism and so forth and might have led to a productive discussion about the ways we need to moder- moderate sort of pure free market capitalism, has just gone, as you say, it's, the apology is is distasteful for me and the, and sad, really sad. Yeah. But, you know, he was a shrewd analyst of Trump, as you suggested. I, I just came across uh, something he wrote, tweeted, I think, in uh, 2016. I think this was even after the election. So I was on a panel with him, I remember, after the election, and he was still anti-Trump at that point, um, having not voted for Trump. And he, uh, JD said Trump is cultural heroin. He makes mm. you, f- he makes some feel better for a bit, but he cannot fix what ails them. And one day they'll realize it. Ugh. And I think it's a shrewd, um, you know, metaphor as it were. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it sort of gives you that temporary high of we're all in the we're fighting against all these things that are allegedly persecuting us and holding us down, making us unhappy. But, of course, it isn't the real things, and it's a false high, a false solidarity almost. And Trump's taking advantage of you just the way the heroin dealer is taking advantage of of, of the addicts. But now J.D. has uh, decided he, you know, there are enough of them, I suppose, that he wants to join them. I'm sure he's convinced himself mm -hmm. of it. I don't don't think he's being dishonest, but
1: it's – Well, he's become a dealer
0: yeah no it's this and the whole so much of the republican party right and mandel Mm -hmm. i knew i i I saw he was criticized somewhere because i actually I, th- I don't really remember this very well, but I think I even did a little event uh, for him, kind of a you know a f- quasi fundraiser yeah. way back in 2010 or 2012 when he was running maybe for the first time for treasurer in 2010 or of Ohio or Senate in 2012, and he was as you say a totally uh, he had served our, in the military and he was an impressive young man and seemed like a very sensible uh, center right. Type who had a yeah. more young person. I was always encouraged to see young people, especially young veterans, get into politics. And I mean, and same with JD, obviously. And uh, it's uh, it is pretty one, one part of his book that I found very interesting was the extent to which the military provided his road out of the kind of mess he found himself in. in Absolutely, in, 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 in Appalachia, and his way to then to college and then to Yale Law School. And I remember at the time, you, actually, we had a panel, and I remember saying, "Isn't." one of the best possible jobs programs, not just jobs, but best kind of anti-poverty programs we could have was just to expand the size of the military, really. (laughs) Uh, I mean, truthfully, though, I mean, you know, they take a ton of people like J.D. Vance, and obviously he's a very talented guy, so he's not quite, you know, maybe your average person, but, but a lot of other people could learn skills and discipline and end up... Being fine and, and Right. They, so you know. let's,
1: let's explain what, what he talked about in the book, because it's really interesting. I mean, you know, he said only when he reached the military, um, did he learn some basics of self-control, right? You know, like mm-hmm. how to, you know, like get up at the same time every day, make your bed, you know, take care of your hygiene, um, ha- balance your checkbook, um, not get taken in by scams, um, you know, eat healthy. I mean, all of these sort of, of life skills that because he grew up in such chaotic circumstances, he never learned. And those are obviously things that are going to stand you in good stead your whole life. Obviously, they're not they don't immunize you against becoming a Trumpist troll, but they they do help you uh, in other ways. And, and it helped him to uh, then, you know, he's also obviously a very bright guy and he was able to finish college and, you know, after that in, in record time and then get admitted to Yale Law and so forth. But, um, but anyway, those basic skills, you know, are, are, Very critical to uh, human capital, as the economists say, and and it would be great if we did a better job of instilling those. I mean, in our families and in our communities. But since we're failing at that, you know, maybe a larger military might not be a bad idea. I'm also, for what it's worth, I'm very much interested in the idea of national service. I know Mm -hmm. for a while conservatives were opposed to it because this, you know, they felt like, well, you know, kind of a there's a libertarian critique. You know, you don't want to force people to to do something but but when you consider that one of our greatest challenges right now as a country is this bitter polarization and the fact that we do not meet people who are different from us and from different parts of the country and from different socioeconomic strata um, it really does make seem more and more attractive to me the idea that you know young people would spend a year or two years doing some form of national service i mean and, and, and being uh, introduced to different parts of the country and different kinds of Americans
0: no I, I I tend to agree with that it's it's interesting speaking of the military how much of course the trump uh, trumpism has now become anti the US military because the. US military is accommodating to some degree some of these uh, criticisms of American uh, the American past and even the American present and mm-hmm. trying to make sure that they're reflected at least that there's that the soldiers and marines and their men and, and all of them know about them and maybe understand that argument even if they don't ultimately agree with it. And mm-hmm. that's, of course, been understood to be, you know, indoctrination of the military with critical race theory. And I think J.D. Vance has joined in that attack, especially on the top brass. And I was talking with our friend Eric Edelman about this over the weekend. He's been your guest on Baked to Differ pretty recently, I think, right? Yeah. And then also, oh, yeah. He's Also wonderful. on this podcast on Charlie's, uh, served at number three at the Defense Department um, under Don Rumsfeld, actually, and then Bob Gates. And I mean, and stayed very close touch with, with with many, many, he was a foreign service officer himself, but very close touch with the military. And th- this attack on the military is not just, you know, a lot of people on, uh, who are anti-Trumpist, uh, both on the left and our world have sort of said, oh, look how, you know, can you believe it? Now they're attacking the military. I'm old enough to remember what conservatives generally tried to defend the military and thought it was, on the whole, a good thing and a force for good uh, in the world and in America itself. But it's really beyond that now, because there really is an attempt to uh, foster dissent and division in the ranks, not a kind of healthy criticism of the brass and maybe this particular, you know, decision is a bad one or this chairman isn't the best ever. God knows it's a free country. We're entitled to criticize military officers like everyone else. Uh, But. It's it's not that, it's really an attempt to, I think, to lay a groundwork for a very dangerous sort of politicization of the military from top to bottom. I mean, you read those tweets of, of, of Trump and his supporters. I mean, they're laying the groundwork for, if one of them becomes president in 2024, firing several of the chiefs at the beginning of 2025 and putting in political loyalists and taking much more control of the promotion process and really encouraging, therefore, people who want to make it up in that particular administration to be Trumpist and to sound Trumpist. And, uh, you know, this is a path towards real dangerous authoritarianism. We've seen this around the world over uh, centuries, millennia, I suppose, right? Right. And one of the great achievements of America has been a pretty rigorous... Non-politicization of the military. Truman famously fired MacArthur in fifty-one. I guess it was. You know, I mean, this sort of we've we've been pretty careful to try to avoid that, not not perfectly, but pretty and done pretty good job of it, so that you didn't think if you were an officer you had to have certain views or you had to cater not just maybe to your immediate boss, everyone has to do that a little bit to the kind of the, the party that's in power. Um, and I mean, I think this assault on the military, and the especially the kind of demagogic attacks on uh, appeals to kind of junior officers to dislike their seniors, because they're allegedly doing all these uh, bad things. It's very dangerous, really.
1: I could not agree more. I mean, the the Trumpist movement, and it is just Trump, it's, it's all of the people who are participating in this, has been like a, a corrosive acid wearing away at, I mean, not that Faith in institutions was particularly robust even before they began their demolition effort, but uh, but they have really sought to undermine confidence in all institutions, whether it's you know the intelligence community, the press, uh, the courts. Uh, and now the really fantastic nonpartisan election uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. that we have all over this country, which, you know, year in and year out has done great work. All these wonderful volunteers, you know, giving their time uh, to uh, to make sure that that uh, the votes are counted in, in, a, in a fair and, and, uh, and nonpartisan Way they're they're attacking that they're attacking confidence in the impartiality of elections and now they're attacking the military. The military is one of the um, one of the institutions in America that still has broad respect uh, uh, by the American people and and sure enough you know the Trumpists are going after that.
0: No, I mean it would have been a different story over the last four years if we didn't have a military that had a lot of internal rules and regulations and norms and customs that made it resistant to uh, politicization, uh, both ways, actually. I mean, they they obeyed they orders from their civilian superiors who were appointed by President Trump. They obeyed orders from their military superiors who incidentally were appointed by President Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. General Milley being the most recent, uh, not the most recent, but the most uh, highest ranking, I suppose. When when Trump made him Chairman of the Chiefs, and uh, but they also you know wouldn't just because Trump. I've always cited this as an example. Trump at one point tweeted, I guess, in his attempt to uh, you know win favor with uh, with parts of the Uh, religious conservative movement uh, something about uh, I'm reversing all this transgender stuff they're all fired from the military You remember this vaguely in Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. 2017 and you know Jim Matters was Secretary of Defense and they did nothing for a day and then said look we have all kinds of procedures for separating people from the military if they deserve to be self-separated but also we don't remove people from the military if they don't deserve to be separated. There, You know, they signed up for their three or four years or whatever, and that this is the way it works and their procedures or someone has to be removed, but you can't just have a, you know, I'm taking this class of people and kicking them out if they right. were admitted under, you know, honest, uh, in this honest way and so forth. So it was a very healthy moment. I thought where we saw, it's not a, a government, at the whim of, of of one person or one set of people sitting around the White House having, you know, ideas about what kind of military they'd like to have. And I mean, but you see this today, it's depressing. No, I'm just, it's depressing to see how much people think that's sort of a legitimate way to think about our armed forces. I You mentioned the election officials. I think that's worth discussing a bit. You've written about that uh, here at the Bulwark and uh, the different attempts to restrict voting rights or b- b- make them Burden them. I guess maybe is a better way to put it. To make them more burdensome for some people to 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 uh, exercise. And that, of course, the attempts to lay the groundwork for possibly overturning or overruling what the voters do, and and uh, overruling the the election officials who stood up. To political pressure in 2020 and as a result of being targeted both politically electorally and also in terms of this legislation uh, right right and now. also
1: personally and um, personally
0: it's really remarkable uh, so we're our, our friends over at uh, the republican accountability project and i guess i'm one of them so i'll, I'll, I'll i'm double-headed here but um uh starting the uh, uh republicans for voting rights which will be announced uh, today actually um, uh, the, 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 spokespeople for it will be Olivia Troy and, and Amanda Carpenter. It's a board with Michael Steele and others and, and, uh, Linda Chavez actually. So a lot of friends of ours, um, but a real attempt to say this should be a bipartisan. By- we can differ on exact, exact, many, many provisions and how long the early voting should be and, you know, all kinds of rules and regulations, but fundamentally preserving a reasonably, open, successful voting system, which led to a massive turnout in 2020 and almost no irregularities, and preserving a system where the votes are counted uh, appropriately and 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 fairly and and recounted if need be, and where election officials have protections against harassment and against sort of being you know a ridiculous kind of lawsuit if something goes wrong for a day and before it's fixed they get sued under some of these laws, and then
1: yeah. you know,
0: protecting the overall system against state legislators just deciding they want to overturn election results, all of that uh, is at risk, and this is something that the Republicans for Voting Rights is going to try to join in making this a bipartisan effort at the state level, at the federal level, and in terms of also elections, where, as you say, these these people are being, these election officials are both being harassed, but also actually targeted in primaries. I mean, that's a pretty dangerous, I mean, no, you can Cherry pick any one of these things if, if you want to minimize the danger and say, oh, well, this particular thing is not going to end the country if we have make it harder to, you know, uh, you have to put your social security number on a absentee ballot or something. And that's mm-hmm. fair enough. But the, the complex of things is a pretty coordinated effort to politicize an election system that, though since it's federal, you know, it's, it's kind of rickety and sort of idiosyncratic in lots of ways and is different in different states, has ultimately ended up serving the country pretty well. Anyway, but you've read about this a fair amount.
1: So what worries me um, is really the... So all of these um, state laws, and there are hundreds of them that are either have passed or are being considered... Um, are are fundamentally ratifying the big lie, right? That that mm-hmm. we had fraud in 2020, and therefore we need laws to guard against that happening again. So that's prob that's a problem. Um, but a lot of the measures are not really that big a deal, as you say. You know, you have to put in your social security number when you ask for an absentee ballot or whatever. I mean, I don't regard those as the biggest threat to democracy or, you know, and sometimes people have complained about trivial things like not being able to give water to people as they wait in line. You know, that's really not a, that's not an earth shattering matter, but, but, um, what is worrisome is that the Republicans have shown a willingness to disregard the will of the voters and to attempt to steal an election. Uh, You know, there are, you know, Raffensperger's sin as in the eyes of the Republicans, of the, uh, Trumpus is, that he would not find 11,780 votes or wherever it was in Georgia for Trump. Um, and, um, and so what I'm concerned about is this, um, possibility that in 2024, if the Republicans have taken the, uh, Congress that, um, uh, or the house, at least that they, they will declined to certify um, the fair result of a 2024 election. And, um, and, And so the Electoral Count Act, this old, ridiculous, horribly written monstrosity from 1887 that governs a lot of this about how the votes are actually counted, really needs to be the focus of attention, it seems to me, not so much you know, the, the vote casting as the vote counting. And that's where these the uh, sensibility of the Republicans is so dangerous. So for example, under the Electoral Count Act, it allows state legislatures to say, if, if an election is close, to just sort of substitute a slate of electors of their choosing. Well, that all of our elections are close these days. And, and so that's an open invitation to fraud right there. Um, also, under this, Law, um, it just requires one member of Congress and one senator to object to the counting of any state's right. slate, which is crazy. I mean, that can be changed, um, and so forth. So there are a number of things that could be done to reform this federal this piece of federal legislation, um, you know. And and I I would I would hope to see the Democrats focus on that. There's been a lot more attention to it, sort of journalistically. I'm not sure if anything is really moving on the Hill.
0: Yeah, no, I'm struck that I mean, Susan asked me this over the weekend. Actually, it was, you know, I think we need to both protect vote casting, but but vote counting is maybe even a more vulnerability the way our system is is set up, at least, and it's something that unambiguously can be protected at the federal level because. The the Electoral Count Act is the law of Congress. Yes. So, uh, but then there are other things, too, in addition to the Electoral Count Act that could be done to help at the state level by sort of insulating some of these election officials from, you know, harassment and so Absolutely. forth. And yeah. uh, there has been less attention to that, it seems to me. And Susan asked, is anyone doing anything about that? Shouldn't the new version of the Mansion Voting Rights Bill, whatever it is, which incorporates aspects of H.R. 1 and of H.R. 4, the John Lewis Bill, also incorporate that? And I, I think they should. And I agree with you. People sort of, when you make, the argument. They say, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm not so certain. I don't know why they're reluctant to add this. If they're going to pass a, a, a sort of secure the vote bill, why, why they wouldn't want to have this as part of it. Maybe they think it's very complicated to modify a
1: over century
0: old act. But no, that was, a, I think we should keep hammering at that. And I'm going to actually, uh, one thing I think we'll do with the Republicans for voting rights is, is try to make a little more of this argument as opposed to dwelling excessively perhaps on some of the Provisions and in, in the state laws that aren't as nearly as damaging or or, or manageable. Let's say you can have right. a fair election with a. But when you
1: when you think about Manchin's objections to HR one, for example, I mean, what what he objected to um, was that it was this huge grab bag of various reforms, many of which had very little to do with actual voting. Right. Um, and um, and but it would you know if Republicans are going to say. Um, that they are opposed to a reform that would make sure that state legislatures cannot change the electoral count, uh, the electoral college uh, casted votes based on their states, uh, how their state popular vote went. If Republicans are going to say they're opposed to that, they're going to have to justify it, you right, know. Right, right, right. And, um, and so I, I just... I just think that this would be the kind of thing that would appeal to Manchin. It would appeal to, you know, at least uh, a, a significant number of, of Republican senators. I could be wrong about that, but I would think, you know, that that a good number. So I don't know. It just strikes me as harder to filibuster this kind of reform that simply requires that the will of the people be enacted um, uh, than than some of these other uh wish list things that the democrats had been focused on not that all the de- elements of the democrats bills were 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 bad a lot of them were good um but right. uh but you know it was overly broad
0: agreed and i well, they're they're aware of this and i think uh hopefully they'll they'll move on this as they, they sort of reassemble they i i guess they just felt they had the Uh, the groups the interest groups the uh not-for-profit world of of voting rights and uh, campaign reform it worked and ethics it worked a long time on hr1 they put together this coalition that had the support of every house democrat i can sort of see that they wanted to play it out they felt they owed it in a way to these people who had worked so hard and some of the ideas in my view were kind of foolish but uh public financing of contributions Mm -hmm. to federal campaigns of under two hundred dollars uh at a six to one match i mean it would have provided more taxpayer money for Marjorie Taylor Greene than for any other member of Congress. She probably exactly. has the most uh, contributions. And it's uh, yeah. And anyway, it's solving a problem that isn't clearly a problem anymore. I don't believe that, that, that there's right. not enough money for, you know, insertions. Quite the contrary. Yes, Anyway, So yes. They, 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 but hopefully now that they've gone through this, the bill didn't obviously get, it got 50 votes, but it's going nowhere in the Senate. The Manchester's made clear he's not going to break the filibuster for that getting a really targeted Voting Rights Act that includes, uh, as you say, not just the voting rights side of it, but the kind of um, uh, honoring the votes that have been cast and ensuring that they're counted correctly and also reported and they're not overturned then, clarifying the Electoral Count Act, that would be, it seems to be the way to to go. So hopefully after this little push we've given on this podcast, maybe this will (laughs) happen. And of course, Republicans for Voting Rights is going to Going to be working on this. Uh, if people are interested in Republicans Voting us, I'll just make this one uh, pitch. You can go to the website and take a look at uh, accountability.gop/slash RVR. So that's the uh, project of the Republican Accountability Project. Um, we should close here, but let's. Uh, we were talking about TV shows uh, recently, and uh, you shocked me by saying I was going to my usual, What British police shows have you been watching? And you said, well, You know, there are. TV shows other than British police TV shows I was actually somewhat shocked by this so please yes. feel free to elaborate you know
1: so you know if if murder and kidnapping you know is is what you're interested in there are, certainly there's a lot to choose from out there and i've seen some of those you know broadchurch was really good but um i've also found a bunch of others i might i i found um a lot of the war ones have been great. There's Charité. Charité is a uh, German, I think it's a German show. It's about uh, a hospital in Berlin. So there's one series, one season is about the hospital in the 19th century, you know, when they're, I think, just discovering uh, various yeah. kinds of medical breakthroughs. Anyway, that's kind of it's very well done. Then they have Charité at War, the same hospital. By the way, it still exists. This hospital is still in huh. Berlin um, is during the, the Nazi era and uh, very very well done. Um, also loved the Weizenzy Saga, which is again German. This is this is based in um, the Cold War and it follows a family. The father is a, an officer in the Stasi. Wow. And it's fabulous. It's just a great, great series, and uh, it's certainly something that doesn't get enough um, dramatic treatment, uh, in, in my opinion. So I, 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 loved that. Just thought I'd recommend it.
0: No, that's great. Well, I'm sort of stuck in my rut watching uh, Unforgotten, which is a good British uh, a series starring Nicola Walker, I think her name is, who's a, yeah. a very good actress, and um, she is, yeah. And then I guess Silent Witness, which I guess has been on for twenty, literally twenty years, and in, in oh, great really? Britain. It is so, it's of sort of is? their law and order, I'm going to say. I mean, it's, oh, okay. it, it, it does have the angle of being like Unforgotten, actually, um, uh, often hinges on a long ago crime where they discover the body and, uh, you know, and, and then they do certain things and that it... it Turns out, it uh, stuff. Uh, that's the si- the silent witness. I guess is the is the you know what the forensic pathologists discover mm-hmm. from, the bo- from the body, either long ago or not. Uh, Unforgotten is about long ago crimes where, and then. You discover a whole chain of things that happened afterwards that were, have been sort of covered over. But uh, anyway, I've, we've enjoyed those. But now I'm going to broaden my horizons and watch uh, German shows and hospital shows and Stasi <laughs> shows. And uh, the, uh, it's very, uh, it's good, it's good. It's shows that we're not just all in one tiny rut here at the bulwark, you know.
1: Excellent. Okay.
0: Mona, Um, thank you for uh, taking the time this morning. Thank you all for joining us on the Bulwark podcast and Charlie Sykes will be back tomorrow. I've enjoyed this conversation with Mona and I hope (laughs) hope you have as well. Thank you.